Hey, Guten Morgen. It's very early. Just got woken up because of the sound like a bobcat, maybe. My new alert always. Ah, hard on the trail. Trump going to jail. What's going on? Any any Trump madness? World of Antiquity got a hundred thousand subscribers. Kansas woman who led all female ISIS battalion gets 20 years. Train derailed in Lovena Township. They just don't like the numbers they're seeing. And that's Fox. Celebrity interviews on today. How come my how come my um what if there was a system that guaranteed paid speaking gigs even if you're a brand new speaker? A system with a predictable flow of paid speaking gigs that enabled you to increase your Trump's income and flexibility for both your business and your life. Now if you sign up for this training and watch all the way to the end, not only are you going to learn the secret to getting booked and paid to speak on a consistent basis, you're also Charlie Sykes, how the right lost its mind. We already did that. Uh, who ruled America? Movies and trailers, films. Full documentary. Democratic governing system investigation. What made the ancient Roman Empire so successful? Metropolis timeline. Uh, Homo Maldi is changing human origins. University plays PBS Wisconsin. Hmm. Mystery of the two million year old human remains. Rewriting human origins. Um, well, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton joins Joy Reid live to discuss the latest on the midterm elections. Mm. Sounds interesting. Uh, Okay, the readout. Let's go for some Hillary Clinton. <sighs> I was wondering why she didn't make a fiery speech like Obama. Well, the... Uh, They just trot out Obama, right? 
One viral speech. Corporate Dems. Because in the race. Where are the fiery speeches? They want to milk us dry for the fucking campaign money. Hey, I'm Chester for Arizona State Mine Inspector. Fucking milk us for the campaign. Campaign dough.
Okay, Trista. What the hell are you doing? Ah, the readout. Ah, with Joy Reed. Oh, it hasn't taken place yet. Ralph Nader breaking through power six years ago. What the fuck? One day ago, Michigan Democrats on verge of stunning development. Brian Tyler hey Cohen. There, Did you know you could save up to two hundred dollars a month with? Shout out to KAMP Student Radio at the University of Arizona and KPYT Pascayaki Travel Radio. Travel Radio. On the Red with Trista Show. Travel Radio. Okay, now we have a member of the Michigan State Senate and rising Democratic star. Uh, Mallory McMorro, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled. I've spent uh, a, a lot of time interviewing candidates for the the House and the Senate, but you're doing something just as important in Michigan. So, uh, you know, I, I feel like Democrats are always trying to stave off losing state legislative chambers. Yours in Michigan is a top target for a flip to the Democrats. Can you give an update here with just over a week to go until midterms on how that's going? For sure. I mean, number one, I want to make the argument that state legislature may be more important than the attention that we often pay to races at the top. No offense to my friends and federal colleagues, uh, but Michigan is really exciting. We had independent redistricting that gives us a chance for the first time in my entire lifetime to flip the state Senate from Republican to Democratic control. Uh, we feel cautiously optimistic. I've been all over the state helping to raise money and get out on doors with our candidates, and we've just got to get through Election Day and get it done. What's effectively on the ballot if if Michigan Democrats are able to flip the chamber? We have 40 years of an agenda that we have to make up for. You know, number one, I think that it is imperative that we fix the basics, that we protect voting rights, that we codify reproductive rights and abortion access, even though we do have a ballot initiative in Michigan to do just that so that we can get back to normal. And then I know my uh, colleagues on the Democratic side, we want to lean into what makes Michigan the best place in the world, a place where people will come to for job opportunities, where we lean into protecting water and the environment and clean energy and really lead the way into what the future of the auto industry looks like and mobility looks like. There's there's so many things. So one major issue I feel like we have to focus on is, you know, the fact that I believe 17 states thus far have outlawed abortion. I think that number is going to probably rise to 26 uh, after this next election cycle. That's without some nationwide abortion protections. Um, Can you talk about Proposal 3 in Michigan? Prop 3 in Michigan would amend our state constitution to effectively codify Roe on the state level. So it would guarantee abortion access and also reproductive rights when it comes to things like contraception, uh, things like sterilization, which women and men both choose uh, once they've maybe had the number of kids that they want to have in their family. So that that is a, a guaranteed constitutional right in our state that cannot be tampered with. And how has that issue like impacted not just Democrats, but independents and Republicans since you've been on the campaign trail? You know, it's been really fascinating. I think that the Dobbs decision actually coming down and and taking Roe away has given so many more people the ability and the freedom to talk about this issue the way we should have been talking about it for decades. You know, for decades, I feel like 
the issue of abortion has been caught in the rhetoric of either you're for abortion on demand or you're a baby killer, which is not at all what this issue is about. So we are hearing from so many women and families uh, who have had complicated pregnancies, who have had ectopic pregnancies and survived, who have had miscarriages that didn't pass um, and the, the hardship of having to go through uh, to be able to have an abortion and, and just how complicated this issue really is. Uh, I heard from a constituent in one of the most uh, Republican parts of my district that he actually saw petitions to get this issue on the ballot circulating to collect signatures after mass at his Catholic church. And that was a real moment for me where I recognized this is so much bigger than people who are showing up at rallies, right? These are hard conversations that people are having with their mothers, with their grandmothers, you know, people who know what this was like before Roe, uh, and recognizing that this is something that we have to protect. But do you think that voters are recognizing, I mean, you have, in Michigan, you have Prop 3 on the ballot, and so that mm -hmm. kind of separates the issue from the candidates, but we shouldn't Smart, forget right? that Republican candidates, if they're elected to office, they'll still push forward uh, legislation or laws that will undermine exactly this proposal. So do you think that even those independents, even those Republicans who are out there supporting measures that would allow for uh, for bodily autonomy, do you think they're able to recognize that that the people on the Republican side who are still vying for their votes are the ones that would put forward legislation that would undermine exactly this proposal? You know, I think the answer is twofold, because number one, I do think Michigan voters recognize that. But number two, as a Democratic candidate down ballot, that's part of our job, too, is to go out into the field, is to knock doors, is to talk to people about exactly this. So at the top of the ticket, we have Governor Gretchen Whitmer, who has been one of the most vocal advocates for this issue. She filed a lawsuit in the state well before the Dobbs decision came out, and her lawsuit is the only thing keeping abortion legal in Michigan right now. Uh, on the other side, we have Tudor Dixon, who's somebody who has said over and over again that she does not believe in any exceptions for rape or incest. She has argued that a child victim of rape being forced to carry their rapist baby to term is actually a healing experience for, again, that child. It's just horrific. And Tudor Dixon has tried to make the argument now that you can vote for Prop 3 and you can vote for her. And I think that's really disrespectful to voters. Voters are a lot smarter than that. We have had 50 years of Roe where we've seen that, yes, even when Roe was was the law of the land, we still had legislatures all around the country chipping away at access, making it harder and harder and harder. Um, and in our legislature, uh, so our 1931 abortion ban makes abortion a felony with a minimum of four years in prison for any medical provider or anybody who aids in that abortion. The Republicans in our legislature not only have not taken up bills to repeal that law, but they've introduced legislation to expand it to 10 years in prison. So we have them on record of trying to make it significantly harder. We just have to make the case to voters that you can't have it both ways. And you deserve legislators who will respect the will of your vote on the ballot. Another major issue that I feel like we absolutely have to be cognizant of is the issue of Moore versus Harper, which is coming, coming before the Supreme Court. That's the independent state legislature theory. Can you speak on that case um, that'll be argued in front of the court? And also, has it been a motivating factor for you as you've been trying to flip this chamber? The National Republicans are spending $34 million against me 
can you chip in anything right now to help me fight back? This is the most money ever spent by a group. All oh, they do is ask for money. They don't fucking pass legislation. Get rid of these fuckers. For those who are not familiar with this case, Amor v. Harper is a case out of North Carolina uh, related to gerrymandered maps that they put forward. Um, and if the Supreme Court rules in its favor, they could do so under the independent state legislature theory, which you mentioned, which is a really extreme interpretation of the Constitution that would effectively say that state legislatures and state legislatures only are the ones who oversee and facilitate elections. It means that they would not be accountable to the courts. It means they would not be accountable to secretaries of state um, or, or even state constitutions. And you can imagine if that's the reality, we could end up in a place where a state legislature could decide, well, we no longer want to run the popular vote for the president in our state. We just want to appoint electors ourselves. That is our right as the state legislature. So it sets up a really scary future uh, where we may not have free and fair elections for the presidency or for federal offices if this were to go through. That is a huge motivating factor for me here in Michigan. Uh, we saw after the 2020 election, my Republican colleagues go out to Washington to meet with the Trump administration um, to talk about how to overturn the 2020 election results. The Republican candidate for attorney general worked with the 20 uh, worked with the Trump administration on how to potentially overturn the 2020 election results. So I feel like Michigan is the epicenter right now, and it is more important for me and for our entire state to basically tell everybody who's trying to push forward on this extremist view of how our country should work, that it's not, not going to work. It doesn't work here. You're not going to win here. And we do that starting in our state legislature. And I hope that Michigan can become an example that the rest of the country can follow. I think it's so important to talk about this now because it's kind of going to be the same situation as Roe was, where no one was paying attention to it. I mean, Roe is a, a, a worse example than this because this is especially obscure, but no one was paying attention until it, to it until the moment that it became too late and suddenly everybody knew what it was. Same as gerrymandering, where people didn't even know what that word meant until we've, you know, we were gerrymandered out of, you know, God knows how many seats. So I'm, I'm glad that we're able to, like, talk about this now. Um, Republicans have really focused for 50 years on state legislatures. They've, they've outspent Democrats three to one. They've you know, beaten Democrats out of a thousand state legislature seats, uh, 28 chambers and on and on. Um, if you could send a message to, you know, the powers that be about uh, where they focus resources, what would you say? So it's an example that keeps me up at night all the time is in 2020, Democratic donors spent about $96 million to try to defeat Mitch McConnell with Amy McGrath's campaign. And this is not a knock on Amy McGrath. I haven't met her personally, but she seems like a perfect candidate and a wonderful person. But that was a race that Democrats just were not going to win. And simultaneously, the DLCC, which is the Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee, their budget for 2020, the entire cycle for all 50 states, for all state legislature seats combined was $51 million less than right around half of what we were sending to one 
federal race. And, you know, it's been such a strange year for me, um, having gone viral for a speech that I gave and, and now being fairly well known to Democrats around the country. You know, people approach me all the time and ask me when I'm going to run for higher office. You know, when am I going to run for U.S. Senate? When am I going to run for, you know, anything else? And it really misses the point. It feels like we always get caught in this trap of looking for the one solution at the top, whether it's a U.S. Senate race, whether it's the presidency. You know, I think a lot of people thought once we get Trump out of office, that's going to fix everything. But it's not. It's not unless we build back this real political power in the states, in every single state legislature. And that is going to take time. It's going to take resources. And your resources are much better spent in state legislatures. You know, I'm the anomaly right now. I am one of the only state legislators in the country who is regularly on national TV. You're never going to see your state legislator on national TV. We're not going to be in national news, but you're going to see us in the grocery store. We're the ones that you can actually talk to face to face. And these are races that are won with thousands of dollars, not millions of dollars. And we have to rebuild uh, across the country. So that's my message is I know, you know, we're, we're a <laughs> days out from the election, there's going to be that tension to go to whatever the U.S. Senate race is that is of the moment right now. Don't do it. Look up your state legislator. Look up who is in your chamber and ship in to them. It's going to make a huge difference. What have you, and you may have answered this question, but what have you found is the most effective way to make people recognize and care about these smaller races as opposed to, you know, the, the, the biggest Senate race going on in the country right now?
decade, chaos, humanitarian disaster, hospitals overrun, schools overwhelmed, the safety net shredded, drug dealers and sex traffickers roaming free, a third world country, no, Arizona. Joe Biden and Mark Kelly have grown open the southern border. Over 5 million illegal immigrants from over 100 countries have entered since Biden took office. Three times the population of Phoenix send a message to Biden and Kelly. We don't want open borders. My name is Shannon Klingman, and I'm a baking enthusiast, a gardener, an aspiring beekeeper, a wife, mother of five, and an OBGYN. Uh, the, the biggest Senate race going on in the country right now. Well, that's part of my, my strategy with this new platform that I've found for myself is I recognize that I'm very unique in that I do have the microphone. I do have this national attention on me. And if I can use myself as a spokesperson for the importance of state legislatures to introduce people to, you know, the incredible people that we have in Michigan right now, who I hope will become my colleagues who are running for state Senate, um, and really recognize that uh, that national media is that hook to bring it down. That is what I'm really committed to doing right now. And, and my hope is that if and when we flip the Michigan Senate, then it sends a signal to national Democrats. around the country that this is the way we have to do it. We can speak more honestly. We can talk about our values. We can be aggressive and we can win if we focus down ballot. And by the way, that's that's our bench too. So, you know, we, we have we have an issue with age in this party. We have uh, an issue with people focusing on these right races. So like, uh, I, I think that when we're looking for like, who's the next person? And especially in the case of where everyone's like, oh, well, we don't know who would who would take over after Joe Biden, but like building our bench is so important. And that's exactly where these people uh, come from. So with that said, you're 36, I believe, correct? Yes. What would you like to see from the party in terms of looking more like the people that it's trying to field for support? You know, I would love to see our party um, do more to amplify people like me and some of my colleagues. I mean, there are people like me in legislatures all around the country who are young, who are diverse, who have very different backgrounds, who <clears> are <throat> passionate and exciting and going about this in a different Term way. Limits. And, you know... Oops. Shit. Well, let's hear Adam Schiff's uh, Washington... Um, fucking ridiculous. ...different backgrounds who are passionate and exciting and going about this in a different way. And, you know, you see the Republican Party right now getting caught up in um, cult of personality. It's all about Trump all the time. And Trump has quite literally said, you know, only I can fix it. I think the strength of the Democratic Party is we are a big tent party. We are made up of so many different types of people. So let's put more of us out there. Let's showcase all of the diversity of our party by age and here's a secret you know when everybody this? asks me how are we going to get young people out to vote run young people for office <laughs> you know we had i talked to high school students and college students who yes i'm in my mid-30s but i'm the youngest person in the senate i'm the closest person to them in age and they can meet with me at a coffee shop we can talk about gun violence we can talk about solutions in a way that gets them engaged and as a party i think we have to do a lot more to elevate mallory way more voices than, than just the people now you f actually flipped a Republican-held seat. What issues or messaging um, were most resonant with the people of your district? Like, 
not just Democrats, but independents and Republicans. Yeah, you know, it was really fascinating. You know, I, I Googled how to run for office, and I had never done this before. I left a very different career, and I filed to run a year and a half before Election Day, so it's very early. And I really, like, like, I'm a nerd. I was trying to figure out, like, what are the most important issues? What's going to connect with people? And, and we were talking about a lot of issues, but I was surprised when I started knocking on doors. And, you know, you can imagine this was five years ago now. And when I'm out, like, with a backpack on and a baseball hat, I look like I'm 12. Um, and I knocked on doors, and I was worried that that was going to be a challenge. But I talked to so many residents who said, you remind me so much of my daughter or my son who left went to Denver or Chicago or New York or LA and that became the hook was what brought you back to Michigan and what can we do to keep my kids here and that crosses party lines that is just about there was a recognition I think from some voters in my district maybe older which is it's not as much about me anymore it's about the next generation and I think there's a huge strength to that that opened the door for me to talk about economic issues, water quality, how, you know, the suburbs where, where I serve connect to the city of Detroit and public transit and all of these things uh, that I think Democrats are really strong in through the lens of this is the thing that's going to bring your kids back. With that said, you touched on, on your background. It is kind of weird, kind of unorthodox. Can you talk a little bit about what you did before you ran for state senate? Yeah, uh, I never had any idea that I would be here. I graduated from Notre Dame with a degree in industrial design and always wanted to be a car designer. Uh, and I picked the worst possible time to do that in 2007 and 2008. So I graduated in 2008. I had an internship at Mazda, and then the entire industry fell off a cliff. So um, I lived in the back of my car. I worked in retail. I applied to probably 500 different jobs. Uh, but eventually found my way to Mattel, where I was a senior designer over global branding and licensing for Hot Wheels. Uh, and then that parlayed into some work in media. I was the creative director for Gawker Media. Uh, I was the partner in a production company that did documentary films and live events. Uh, and then when we moved back to Michigan, I opened my own consultancy, doing a little bit of all of that. So I was consulting with the auto industry and, and smaller local businesses on branding and creative direction. Uh, and then the 2016 election happened, and I think I, like a lot of people, woke up the next day and just thought, oh, crap, <laughs> i gotta, I got to do something about this, and I don't know what yet. If, uh, if, if you, I feel like I do this with my friends all the time, but now we have this, like, explosion of, of EVs that are just, that, like, everyone is, everyone is just completely new, completely different. Um, if, if you can get any EV that's on the market or not, what would it be? On the block list, that's it, that pussy trash, I'm probably... Yeah, I'm just a friend. I'm That's it, that pussy trash on the block list. That's right. So, come on, Trista. 
So let's listen to... If you can get any EV that's on the market or not, what would it be? Oh, any EV? Okay, well, this is something that I can't afford, but there is a uh, startup company called Charge that makes replica uh, original Mustangs, but they're EV, and they look super cool. They're like $200,000. I could not possibly afford it, but if, you know, Ford or anybody is out there, if you make a replica original Mustang EV, I'm all over it. <laughs> Let's finish off with this. What's uh, what's next for you? What's next is flipping the Senate. You know, we got less than two weeks left, and I have been pulled in a lot of different directions. I've had a lot of people reach out and say, are you going to work with the DNC? Are you giving messaging training? But I am somebody, you know, I gave up my career to do this because I think this matters. And my firm belief is that if we flip this chamber, this is an entirely new playbook, that that is something much more tangible that then I can take back to the DNC, I can take back to the DLCC, I can work with legislators all over the country and say, this is how we go forward, guys. Let's get it done. So often that we hear, like, okay, we just need to flip the chamber as if it's just this, like, ethereal thing. But day one, uh, if Democrats control legislative chambers in Michigan, what would uh, what would actually get done? Well, the question is, and this is sort of a wonky answer to the question, it's a question of whether or not we flip both houses, because it is a... Okay. <clears throat> Ancient aliens, the mysterious power three. Something's trying to get our attention, trying to tell us something. The Hindu, Tree Morty. We see it going back very, very far into the earliest aspects of human history. And the Holy Trinity of Christianity. The number represents a portal, a gateway into another realm. Throughout human history, the number three has always had a unique significance. But why? No matter why? what ancient culture you look at, the highest ones always came as threes. What is it about the number three that makes it play such a big role in religion, architecture, and even the occult? And could there be an extraterrestrial connection? Once we understand this power of three, we ourselves will become like our creators, the gods. Millions of people around the world believe we have been visited in the past by extraterrestrial beings. What if it were true? Did ancient aliens really help to shape our history? And if so, might the secrets of the universe be revealed by examining the incredible power of three. Ireland. The walls of this 5,000-year-old passage tomb are decorated with mysterious designs made up of three connected spirals. Yunnan province, China. Three 1,100-year-old Buddhist temples known as the Three Pagodas form a triangle thought to protect the population from natural disasters. Ancient Greece. According to myth, 
the destiny of gods and men is controlled by human beings understand numbers. All of us live in a physical universe where things come in different numbers. And so different cultures will highlight different numbers as particularly important, ritualize them, uh, and make them culturally important. We see widespread use of the number three in European traditions, but also we see it in selected traditions around the world too. These number traditions can become very, very powerful and connect cultures together. Unique reverence for the number three dates back thousands of years and can still be found today in art, architecture, mythology, literature, science, and religion. But why? What is it about this number that has continued to hold such significance for mankind? If you think of our lives, we have a past, a present, and a future. Our story falls neatly into three. Throughout folklore and mythology, we find the number three. Something about three is trying to get our attention, trying to tell us something. The number three comes up many, many times in Judeo-Christian scriptures. Jonah is in the belly of the whale for three days. In Genesis, the waters are separated from the earth after three days. In the New Testament, Jesus in the tomb for three days. There's just a special significance there. We see the number three in sacred texts. And why is that? Is there something within us that is hardwired to understand that three is a sacred number? And where does this come from? The Giza Plateau, Egypt. Three great pyramids line the desert just outside of Cairo. Constructed more than 4,000 years ago, this unique trio of monuments is arguably the most recognizable in all the world. The pyramids also employ. No, it's the most a lot older than 4,000 years. You had in ancient Egypt what we might think of as a Masonic tradition. There were the builders themselves who embodied the knowledge of geometry, the knowledge of tool making, and how to put buildings together, and especially how to create buildings uh, that were themselves the vehicles for initiating or inducing higher consciousness. The Giza pyramids are very interesting in that you have three major pyramids. Their sides are triangles. Think of the triangle, the simplest, most perfect geometric form. The ancients were certainly intrigued by geometry, indeed sacred geometry. And certainly a triangle is one of those basic archetypal shapes that perhaps is hardwired into the human consciousness. And this may uh, find expression in monuments such as the pyramids. You've got that progress towards perfection. 
towards the top of the triangle. It's a very upward directed, higher directed shape. And I think we kind of get that on a subconscious level. Demystify the book of Revelation with this Amazon bestseller, Hebrew Insights from Revelation, now available for free. Travel back in the very upward directed, higher directed shape. And I think we kind of get that on a subconscious level. So there is a sense in which the yeah, number three, in the form of the triangle, in the form of the apex of the pyramid, represents a portal, a gateway. into another realm. You might say it's a realm of the gods. Do the three pyramids of Giza really represent some sort of portal to a divine realm? Perhaps more clues about the sacred nature of the triangle can be found by examining the work of one of the most celebrated mathematicians of all time. Samos Greece, 6th century BC. Greek mathematician and philosopher Pythagoras introduces his famous theorem. A squared plus B squared equals C squared. The formula explains the mathematical relationship between the three sides of right triangles. And some believe it was originally based on the design of the Egyptian pyramids. Pythagoras lived 2,500 years ago it is said that he studied with the great teachers of Egypt and he brought the wisdom of Egypt back to Greece. That, in effect, was the birth of Greek philosophy. For Pythagoras, and for a lot of ancient philosophers, mathematics was a kind of more precise description of the supernatural. You're coming to terms with man's place on this earth and one of the ways you do that is by measurements and measurements have to develop and when they develop they develop more complex mathematics and Pythagoras is one of the very early philosophers to develop this stuff Pythagoras taught that everything in the universe has a three-part structure and every problem in the universe can be reduced diagrammatically to a triangle Pythagoras and his followers, the triangle represented ascension, and the triangle itself, and the number three, was the key to all the hidden mysteries. In Karnak, France, there are thousands of megalithic standing stones that are over 6,000 years old, and many of them are in the form of a right triangle or a Pythagorean triangle. And they were built many thousands of years before Pythagoras. These same geometric relationships of the right triangle have also been found at Avebury and, and Stonehenge. And you have to ask yourself, does the Pythagorean triangle represent some kind of special extraterrestrial geometry, a geometry of threes? bottom line is that a squared plus b squared equals c squared applies to the entire universe and so for pythagoras to come up with this of course is extraordinary but he was not the first so we know that pythagoras got this information from ancient egypt 
and the ancient Egyptians themselves say that this was knowledge from the gods. So what we have is a situation whereby the ancient Egyptians got this information from a non-human intelligence, from an extraterrestrial source, preserved it in secret for thousands of years. And Pythagoras is really the first one to take it outside of Egypt and basically begin to speak to the world about what it is, what the ancient Egyptians knew about this divine information. Did Pythagoras really get his knowledge of geometry and its profound connection to the universe from an otherworldly source? Pythagorean triangle may contain wisdom that we still haven't understood in terms of how physical terrestrial geometry connects to extraterrestrial domains that may coexist with our own. Did extraterrestrial visitors provide early humans with advanced mathematical information? Information that would help them unlock the secrets of the universe. And if so, why? And what is the secret of the number three? Is it a code? Or could it be a gateway to communication with mankind's alien ancestors? Ancient astronaut theorists believe further evidence can be found by examining a mysterious artifact, one that could very well change the world. Is that it? Cambridge University, England. Here, in the library of this 800-year-old institution, are the research papers of Sir Isaac Newton, one of the most influential scientists of the 17th century. Newton introduced what became the basis of all modern physics, the three laws of motion. One of the things I think we often forget about people like Newton, he was also very much into alchemy, and he was very much a mystic himself. Because the world rejected you, you created a facade. You created a personality, a persona. That which you believed the world would accept. But after a while, you begin to realize that even the personality and the persona isn't really being fully accepted. Then you're screwed. Because you've worked so hard over the course of 20, 30, 40, or even 50 or 60 years to create this identity. Because you believed it's what the world wanted. So you've been falsely led to believe that the world doesn't want the real you. Well, I'm here to let you know that the world needs the real you. Resting in the awareness of your breath transforms your life into a living meditation. Your life, the life that you're living, the life that you've personalized, doesn't actually mean anything about you. Every single thing that you've gone through, you've gone through so that you can be of service to another human being. And ultimately, you've incarnated into your particular manifestation of both the conscious and the unconscious in order to transform it so that you could step into who you really are. Grateful for how our lives have been rearranged. Even though we may not be sure about 
where we're going to end up. We know somewhere deep down inside of us that it's going to be better than we could ever have imagined. Once you get that your life actually doesn't mean anything about you, and that even your life and the events of your life aren't personal, that actually you've just, you're just going through everything that you're going through so that you can be of service to the world, to the collective, that's when you begin to explore who you are on a universal level. Good morning, sweet friends, and welcome to another Cult Calm Meditation. Seated where you are comfortably, I'd like you to imagine or envision that you are in a beautiful room. Don't worry about the how. Just have the courage to dream. Thanks for being a part of my dream. I love you. Nice. <clears throat> so, very much into alchemy, and he was very much a mystic himself. In mystical circles and in alchemy, three is considered a powerful number. So it was natural for people to try and write things in threes and break it down into threes and use that principle to communicate information. Alchemy was a hope of early magicians or chemists. The idea was that maybe if they could just figure out how to combine different materials together, they could wind up with something precious. There was a long-standing interest in it. And a lot of the sort of early scientific developments and even ideas of chemistry uh, came from this practice. Included among Newton's writings on philosophy, astronomy, and mathematics is a cryptic translation of an ancient document that has fascinated alchemists for centuries. An emerald tablet. Carved on green crystal, the tablet is believed to be one of several that contain not only information on the practice of alchemy, but the secrets of the universe. But although it is referenced by Newton and written about in numerous other ancient texts, the existence of the so-called emerald tablets is largely thought to be a myth. The emerald tablet or tablets contained perhaps the most fundamental ancient wisdom, the ancient wisdom of transmutation, the secrets of longevity, the secrets of the cosmos. And there are many different legends about this tablet or tablets. Some people say that they were found in the Great Pyramid thousands of years ago. The so-called emerald tablets had the secrets of alchemy and alchemy itself wasn't just about the transmutation of base matter into a pure state into gold but it was about the knowledge of the secrets of the universe about how we ourselves could transform ourselves and become at one with the universe as a whole the emerald tablets have a very interesting phrase. Three is the great mystery come from the great one. It says that three is the great mystery that unifies the universe. It says that power, wisdom, awareness all arises from this interplay of three. 
What we're being confronted with in the Emerald Tablets is basically this notion that if we take two substances, we can make a third substance out of this. Three as such is always the power of transformation. It is the end result for the alchemist, basically saying, I took certain things and I created something new. And that is represented by the third element. The information was written down, which basically detailed that if anybody were to possess this knowledge, he would become a master of life, a master over death, an almost supernatural being who could do anything at will. Were early scientists like Isaac Newton seeking extraterrestrial knowledge? And was that knowledge based, in part, on a unique power inherent in the number three? Perhaps answers can be found by taking a closer look at the man many believe to be the author of the Emerald Tablets, Hermes Trismegistus. Starting in the 4th century BC, a character develops called Hermes Trismegistus. His name just means Hermes thrice great. So Hermes Trismegistus is the Hellenistic Egyptian version of the Greek Hermes, and he's associated with the Egyptian god Thoth. And so for that reason, primarily, he becomes associated with his magical practices of theurgy, which is doing the works of the gods, influencing the world. At some point, as the Greeks moved into Egypt and the Romans moved into Egypt, there was an endeavor to correlate the Egyptian traditions with the Greek and Roman traditions. So you had this connection between Thoth and Hermes. And the idea in both cases is this is the deity that is the messenger or the link between our human realm and the higher realm of the gods. According to some legends, he was a reincarnation of Toth, the ancient scribe of Egypt, the scribe of the gods. He was an individual who brought knowledge, who brought wisdom. He was considered thrice great, three times great. Hermes descended from the sky in what was considered to be a flying ship. And we have the exact same story in ancient Egypt with Thoth, also having descended from the sky. And his whole premise was to teach the people in scientific disciplines. Was Hermes Trismegistus really the reincarnation of the Egyptian god Thoth? And if so, did he serve as a messenger between man and the gods? as the ancient Greeks believed. Already have been, as ancient astronaut theorists contend, an extraterrestrial being. One who... How do we live in this intensely volatile time with crises on all sides and blaze a warrior's path through the fire? I am Rabbi Dr. Tirsa Firestone, and I'm here to tell you about a free online event in which I will be sharing teachings from two ancient technologies that can help you live in radical presence now. I'll be drawing from mystical Judaism 
and the venerable teachings of Tibetan Buddhism, both uniquely situated for our day. There was a sense in ancient times that only the elect could perceive these ancestral technologies. And that elect was, of course, men. And even among men, the teachings were targeted for the elite intelligentsia. Well, today, these teachings are calling to us, all of us, all of us, demanding of us to employ them in new ways that speak to our modern sensibilities in the urgency of now. I invite you to join me as we begin to unlock teachings that have been prohibited to us, to women, to non-elite scholars. I will guide you through a practice in which you will experience an embodied sense of your own wise being, the seat of your soul. I'm so looking forward to seeing you. I hope you'll join me.